For Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, the summer and fall of 1862 was a veritable roller coaster ride of emotion, from glimmering hope to hand wringing despair. For Davis, the Confederate summer offensive may well have been the South's greatest chance for foreign recognition. But by the end of October, that moment had passed. For Lincoln, far too cautious and deliberate generals allowed retreating Confederate armies to escape from Maryland and Kentucky. Both presidents had to accept that the conflict had no end in sight. And yet, as 1862 drew to a close, both saw opportunity in central Tennessee. Fought in weather that had to match the mood of weary men, officers, presidents, and American people. This is the story of the clash along the banks of Stones River. This is the story of the Battle of Murfreesboro. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. As the year 1862 drew to a close, there seemed no end to the war. Back on the 13th of December, the Federal Army of the Potomac was emphatically and bloodily repulsed at Fredericksburg. In the West, Grant's overland designs to capture Jackson and Vicksburg, Mississippi, went awry when a Confederate force wrecked Grant's supply depot at Holly Springs, Mississippi, forcing him to return to Memphis. In late December, an isolated force under William T. Sherman attacked just north of Vicksburg and Chickasaw Bayou and was driven back. Mr. Lincoln would have to wait a little longer for the father of waters to flow unvexed to the sea. And so, as the clock ticked down on the last hours of that bloody year, there would be one last clash, and it would occur in central Tennessee, a battle that the South would call Murfreesboro, and the North, Stones River. The river that ran nearby was named for an early hunter in the area, Uriah Stone. The town of Murfreesboro, population around 4,000, was named for Colonel Hardy Murphy, a veteran of the War for Independence. Located about 30 miles southeast of Nashville, Murfreesboro once hosted Presidents Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. For most, however, Murfreesboro was simply a town that people passed through to get to somewhere else. And militarily, that held true this final month of December, 1862. To the southeast, there were roads that led to Chattanooga and its railroads. To the northwest, Nashville. To set the table, some background. At this point in the war, Memphis and Nashville were both within the Union fold. But Mr. Lincoln wanted more and hoped that back in October, Union Major General Don Carlos Buell would fall on Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army, which after the Battle of Perryville was falling back from Kentucky and headed for Tennessee. Before they got away, 
Lincoln wanted Bragg's army destroyed. On the 16th of October, Buell communicated that pursuit was out of the question, primitive roads and barren countryside. To that, the president responded that he did not understand why his armies could not march as the enemy marched, live as they lived, and fight as they fought, unless admitting the inferiority of Union troops and their generals. Despite Lincoln's prodding, after two more weeks of skirmishing and less than vigorous pursuit, Braxton Bragg's army, on October the 23rd, made good its escape into Tennessee via the Cumberland Gap. The very next day, Friday, October 24th, an exasperated Union commander-in-chief relieved Don Carlos Buell of command. In his place, Major General William Stark Rosecrans. He was 43 and stood six feet. He wore a closely cropped beard and sported a large hooked red Roman nose. More often than not, one found him chewing a cigar. Though a devout Roman Catholic, he was a big drinker. Enjoying banter, he once kept his staff up until 4 a.m. ten nights in a row, verbally sparring about the topic of religion. Quick to anger, he was equally quick to forgive. In battle, he became excited and gave frantic orders that made him difficult to understand. Good to subordinates, he irritated superiors. But the bottom line, and the president was well aware of it, the men of the Army of the Cumberland liked old Rosie. Yes, William Stark Rosecrans instilled hope. But with hope, there was challenge. The word from Washington City? Neither the country nor the government will much longer put up with the inactivity of some of our armies and generals. And so, the man who graduated fifth of 56 in his West Point class of 1842 retrained and re-equipped his army and re-cleared Nashville of any subversive Confederate parties. Yet, while doing so, October turned into November and that month gave way to the next. On December the 4th, a telegram. The president is very impatient at your long stay in Nashville. If you remain one more week at Nashville, I cannot prevent your removal. His opponent, still in command, after the disappointing Kentucky campaign, General Braxton Bragg. Back on June the 17th, 1862, the man who for years suffered from dyspepsia, dysentery, and chronic headaches took command of the then-named Confederate Army of Mississippi. When he led that army into the Bluegrass State, it was renamed the Army of Kentucky. Now back in the Volunteer State, it was again renamed, this time to the Confederate Army of Tennessee. Regardless of its name, it had inherent problems. Many of Bragg's lieutenants complained bitterly about his leadership. There were some successes while in Kentucky, but his officers were sick of Bragg's martinet-like discipline and inconsistent command. All were deeply disturbed at not what Bragg had done in the Kentucky campaign, but what he had not done. Their disgruntled reports about missed opportunities made it back to Richmond, and on October the 23rd, the day before Lincoln relieved Union Major General Don Carlos Buell, Confederate 
President Jefferson Davis asked Braxton Bragg to travel to Richmond. Before the Confederate commander-in-chief, the native of North Carolina honestly and straightforwardly reported that he retreated to save his army. Then a strange twist. Perhaps to smooth ruffled feathers, Davis promoted two of Bragg's most vocal critics, Leonidas Polk and Edmund Kirby Smith. He made the two lieutenant generals and asked both to return to duty and serve Bragg in the most supportive capacity they could muster. Back with his army in Tennessee, Bragg drew up a new campaign. From his base in Chattanooga, he called for an advance to the northwest, to Tullahoma, Tennessee, then on some 30 miles to Murfreesboro, and from there, another 30 miles northwest to strike federally held Nashville. That plan was approved in early November, and Bragg's Army of Tennessee moved. By November the 20th, the advanced elements of his army had reached Murfreesboro. Within days, some 27,000 men, with 7,732 more on their heels, caught their breath. Though all had made their objectives thus far, they were desperate for supplies, shoes, and materiel. Interestingly, there was food in town and in the vicinity, but it had been promised to Lee's Army of Northern Virginia back east in Virginia. With Bragg's army in motion, so too was Richmond. On Monday, November the 24th, Joseph E. Johnston was placed in overall command of the entire Confederate Western Theater, an area that included western North Carolina, Tennessee, northern Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and eastern Louisiana. It was an imposing, impossible task. Under him, John C. Pemberton's Confederate force at Vicksburg and Bragg's army, which was now in Murfreesboro. Two forces, isolated, undersupplied, and undermanned. Johnston suggested to Pemberton that he come out from Vicksburg and join Bragg in Tennessee. United, the two would then strike Rosecrans' Federal Army of the Cumberland. Johnston believed that would compel U.S. Grant to keep his men around Memphis and delay or force him to give up his designs on Vicksburg. However, Johnston's strategic plan was rejected. Instead, 9,000 men under Confederate Major General Carter Stevenson, one-fourth of Bragg's force, was taken from Bragg and sent to Pemberton at Vicksburg. And though Johnston was appointed to defuse dissension, it continued unabated. So much so that on December the 10th, the Confederate president arrived in Murfreesboro for a two-day stay. There, he heard much of the same disparagement voiced before concerning Bragg's command. And when he left on the 13th for Chattanooga, he had to be troubled. So were Bragg's men. In fact, it was a dispiriting time for all, and it didn't help that Bragg, one of the strictest of Civil War disciplinarians, had three men executed during the Christmas season. One was Private Asa Lewis of the 6th Kentucky. His 12-month enlistment had ended, and he opted not to re-up, but Bragg did not honor his decision. 
At home, Lewis's father had died, and his mother was left to tend to three young children. The Kentucky private applied for a furlough to go home and plant crops, but it was denied, and so he did what he believed he had to do. He deserted. A bounty hunter returned him. At issue, this was his second desertion. Bragg ordered he should be executed, made an example of. Lewis's very own unit, the Orphan Brigade, was ordered to form an open square December the 26th. The execution began just after 11 a.m. It took three volleys from a firing squad to kill him. The scene so violent and heartbreaking that Brigadier General John C. Breckinridge, who witnessed the execution, pitched forward on his horse sick. Meanwhile, up in Nashville, Major General Rosecrans learned that Stevenson's Confederate force had been sent west, and there were reports that Confederate raider John Hunt Morgan took his cavalry on a raid up in Kentucky, and Nathan Bedford Forrest's mounted element was creating havoc in western Tennessee. To Rosecrans, Bragg's numbers had to be down and two troublesome Confederate raiders were not around to harass his supply line. So now was a good time to advance. And so on Christmas Day, he issued orders to move southeast to Murfreesboro. The next day, the 26th, in a cold rain, three columns in blue moved out. Rosecrans' left wing was under Major General Thomas T. Crittenton, his center under Major General George Henry Thomas, and his right under Major General Alexander McDowell McCook. 44,000 of Rosecrans, 82,000 were on the march. The remainder, some 38,000 of Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland, remained behind in Nashville to protect his supply line, the Louisville-Nashville Railroad. When Bragg learned of the advance, he pulled together his scattered 32-mile-long crescent of men, faced them to the northwest, and waited. There at Murfreesboro, he had 34,732 men. His supply line ran to the southeast, to Chattanooga, some 100 miles away. The terrain there? Open. Accessible, though there were patches of rough ground littered with limestone shelves, boulders, deep crevices. Also, there were thick stands of cedar, corn, and old cotton fields. Though Morgan and Forrest were away, Bragg did have another mounted element, and it was led by the youthful Brigadier General Joseph Wheeler. On the 29th of December, his force struck the Federal rear and, in doing so, destroyed all or parts of four wagon trains. In two days, Wheeler completed a successful ride around Rosecrans' army. They captured and paroled about 1,000 enemy soldiers, captured fresh horses, and enough weapons to equip an entire brigade. Despite the reversal, Rosecrans continued his advance. Meanwhile, Bragg's 34,000-plus prepared east and west of Stones River, a landmark that, in fact, split Bragg's force. Bragg's left was under ordained Episcopal bishop, the 56-year-old Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk. To his right, old reliable Lieutenant General William J. Hardy. 
As the two armies closed, Polk and Hardy were filled with mixed emotions, for the two held grave doubts about their commander. And, as battle neared, both Rosecrans and Bragg made plans to attack the other. Rosecrans wanted to hit the Confederate right, using Crittenden's corps as a diversion. His main attack, however, would be on the Confederate left, which he hoped to turn and roll. Interestingly, Bragg wanted to hit the Federal left as a feint and throw his main punch at the Federal right. Indeed, quite interesting had both attacked simultaneously. And so it would come down to which force attacked first. Both planned to strike early the morning of Wednesday, December 31st. It was during a dreary, rainy day of the 30th. Both armies prepared. They prepared for their grisly work on the morrow. Rosecrans' line, three miles from town, ran from the west bank of Stones River southwest three miles to the Franklin Road. That night, he ordered his right to build campfires far beyond their actual line to confuse prying Confederate eyes and design. Indeed, that ruse would affect Bragg's attack the very next day. There was more than deception that night. With two armies bivouacked only 700 yards apart, there was playful jousting. The contestants? Two bands, one Federal and one Confederate. A battle of the bands, if you will. The Union band played Yankee Doodle, Hail Columbia, the Star Spangled Banner, and other Union airs. Across the way, the band in Butternut and Gray answered with Dixie, Bonnie Blue, Flag, and such. Then, in an emotional encore, the Federal band began Home Sweet Home. And in mid-verse, the Southern band picked it up and they finished the tune together. It was a touching scene for men far away from loved ones, a lull before the coming storm. Bragg, in order to set the stage for his planned main attack the next morning, ordered Hardy to extend his left across the Franklin Road. It was this corps that Bragg counted on for success. The next morning, the last day of 1862, it dawned similarly as the day before, cold, damp, misty. Men on the Union right under McCook, the focal point of Bragg's main attack, had been up for a while, due in part to concern raised by bandy-legged Brigadier General Philip Sheridan, who was in command of McCook's 3rd Division. He had been roused from sleep at 2 a.m. by one of his officers, Brigadier General Joshua W. Sill, who had observed Confederates moving across his front. Indeed, it was Hardy's men moving. Three times Sill warned. Finally, Sheridan responded. The two talked and decided to inform their Corps commander, McCook, who, when he received the news, seemed to show very little concern. No matter. Sheridan alerted all 12 regiments in his command and had them up at 4 a.m. and at the ready. 
Perhaps McCook thought like Rosecrans, that the Union attack would come first. But that idea evaporated around 6 a.m. and most rudely. For Confederates lost in the gray of mist and fog advanced. Some 11,000 men moved forward from a clump of black cedars, paused, dressed lines, then blasted the damp air with their hair-raising rebel yell. However, reacting to Rosecrans' ruse the night before, the building of campfires far beyond his actual line, Hardy's men had moved so far to their left that their attack, like a tidal wave, lapped around McCook's 16,000. Suddenly, the Union right was drowned in a sea of butternut and gray. It was just like Shiloh. Seven Confederate brigades washed over two in blue. In a half hour, they ceased to exist. Sill, the officer who issued warnings the night before, was killed instantly, a bullet through his head. Simultaneously, Confederate cavalry under Brigadier General John A. Wharton struck the Union rear. Two Union divisions were driven. Panic reigned. One captain from Indiana found motivation to do what he believed he could not. Racked by rheumatism, which required the use of a cane, the Confederate assault prompted him to drop his cane and head for the rear at breakneck speed. In the Confederate center, that portion commanded by Leonidas Polk, First Division Commander Major General Benjamin F. Cheatham shouted, Give him hell! Give him hell! Bishop Polk was equally enthused, but being a religious man, yelled, Give him what General Cheatham says! Soon thereafter, it was time for Polk's corps to join the attack. In Polk's front, Sheridan's division offered resistance, even as they fell back. Incredibly, Rosecrans, who was on the Federal left, was not aware of the disaster. He a victim of atmospheric conditions, a condition known as acoustic shadow. He was unaware that two-thirds of his right was dislodged, unaware that his center was falling back, many driven some two to three miles to the rear some as far back to the Nashville Pike, which was their retreat route. Yes, Rosecrans had had his initiative stolen, but now, alerted, he responded. Exposing himself recklessly, he seemed to be everywhere. He assisted in reforming his line. He sent for and led reinforcements. With him, his staff, which included Lieutenant Colonel Julius Peters Garrishay. Rosecrans' friend from West Point, who now served as his chief of staff. Only days before, the Cuban-born Garrichet told others he did not expect to survive the coming battle. That foreboding had in part been planted back in Washington City when an old woman approached him and told him he would be killed in his first battle. And yes, this was his first fight. Indeed, as Rosecrans and his staff rode frantically about the battlefield, a Confederate shell found Garrichet and decapitated him. So sudden the blast, his lifeless body remained in the saddle some twenty paces, spouting blood like a fountain before it finally slumped to the ground. Rosecrans was covered in his friend's brains and blood. Meanwhile, fighting for his corps' life, McCook bent his line back to a 90-degree angle. 
By 10.30 or so, the Union line had been hammered into a V, its left facing east, its right west. At its apex, men under Philip Sheridan. Within the first three hours of battle, the 5-foot-5, 117-pound division commander had lost all three of his brigade commanders. Though his men had been punished, they gave as good as they got and made a stand just north of the Wilkinson Pike. Across the way, with the Union line reeling, now was the time for Bragg to complete the rout. His attacks had been successful, but they had been made with terrible cost, particularly when attacks came apart, lost momentum, and the Federal line reformed and stiffened. One-third of Hardy's corps was down. Six brigade and regimental officers either killed or wounded. Polk's Corps, tangling with Sheridan, had suffered 30% losses. It was around 10 a.m. when Hardy, aware that his momentum had slowed, asked Bragg for reinforcements. To his credit, Bragg sent for two brigades from Breckinridge's division, which was on the extreme Confederate right. They would have to cross to the west bank of the Stones River. Though ordered to send men, Breckinridge believed he was about to be attacked and refused to comply with Bragg's order. The commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, when informed of Breckinridge's decision and in an effort to make some use of his men, now issued another order for Breckinridge to attack Union forces in his front. Prodded his men move forward, but incredibly found no force to hit. Most, if not all, had been shifted to blunt Confederate success on the west side of the river. In the meantime, Bragg received a report that Federal infantry was approaching from the northeast. Without confirming the report, he canceled all orders to reinforce Hardy on the Confederate left. The report was erroneous. There was no Federal column. Bragg's decision to cancel Confederate reinforcements from his right to left may well have saved Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland, which by then had already lost 28 guns and had some 3,000 men taken prisoner. And so, while some Federals reformed, some fell back, and as we mentioned earlier, as far north as the Nashville Pike, and by doing so, created a gap, and Leonidas Polk wanted to exploit it. He prepared to send in brigades made up of men from Mississippi and Tennessee. Their attack aimed at the Federal salient in the center of their V, the point in the Federal line that protected the Louisville-Nashville Railroad and the Nashville Pike, and the point that seemed most vulnerable to Confederate crossfire. The attack to be made over old cotton fields and through a clump of cedars, some four acres of rocky, elevated ground, was known locally as the Round Forest. For what was to come, it would be renamed Hell's Half Acre. There, unbeknownst to Polk, George Thomas had concentrated 50 Union guns, and with them, a Federal Division of Infantry under Brigadier General John M. Palmer. The lull in Confederate decision-making proved fatal. The Federals, knocked back on their heels all morning, had been reinforced from their left and were itching to retaliate. The first wave of Confederates swept forward in this new assault, a Mississippi brigade under Brigadier General James A. Chalmers. 
The 50 Federal guns tore them apart. They couldn't miss. The noise so great that some Confederate soldiers stopped to pick leftover cotton, stuffing it into their ears. Next stormed a brigade of Tennesseans under Brigadier General Daniel S. Donaldson. Another episode of slaughter. In one Confederate company, all of its officers were shot down. Wright Hackett assumed command. He was a private. The 8th Tennessee started with 425. 306 were now casualties. With this development, Bragg, at 1 p.m., unequivocally ordered Breckenridge to send four brigades across the river. So 6,000 men moved to Polk's assistance, but it took them some three hours to get there. And upon their arrival, Polk made the mistake of sending them in piecemeal, two brigades at a time. Their bloody repulse ended the fighting that day. Despite Confederate surprise and gains, casualties were about even. That night, Rosecrans called a council of war. During that meeting, an exhausted George H. Thomas was asleep. But the word retreat jolted him awake. He blurted, this army does not retreat. His determination helped to sway Rosecrans. Though low on rations, his army had plenty of ammo, and therefore he decided to ring in 1863 fighting. Council of War over, Rosecrans stayed up most of the night consolidating, reassuring, and strengthening. Meanwhile, in the Confederate camp, Bragg received a report that Federal wagons were headed northwest back toward Nashville. There were some. But rather than retreat, those wagons were empty ones searching for provisions for an army that planned to stay exactly where it was. Bragg, believing he had won a great victory, telegraphed Richmond, God has granted us a happy new year. With that, without inspecting his lines or giving any orders for pursuit the next day, he went to bed. That night, There was freezing rain. Many of the badly wounded froze to the ground, adding to the carnage of those killed outright. Murfreesboro was one massive hospital. The stories of personal suffering and grief, too many and too terrible to recount. A Confederate captain, Spurlock, had visited his parents who lived in the Murfreesboro area the night of the 30th. He joined them again the night of the 31st his lifeless body carried into their home. A Murfreesboro woman came to claim her sons, all four of them killed that day. Union wounded, those fortunate enough to be found, were placed in springless ambulances. They made the 30-mile ride back to Nashville, jolting over frozen and rutted roads. To illustrate the fact that rations were low within the Union Army, One sergeant in the 21st Wisconsin witnessed the shooting of a young horse that was only 10 feet away. The men who shot the colt were so hungry, they ate it. The next day, Bragg awoke and was surprised to learn that the Federals were still on the field. Instead of kicking into action, he slipped into lethargy and unbelievably spent the day at menial task in issuing inconsequential orders. On this 
the day that Mr. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. There was sporadic fighting all along the line. The only thing of any tactical consequence that Thursday the 1st was that Bragg failed to reoccupy a hill east of Stones River that overlooked McFadden's Ford, and that fact dominated Bragg's thinking on Friday the 2nd of January. From that elevation of that hill, Confederate guns could hit Union guns west of the river. It was the same hill that Bragg had ordered vacated back on the 31st when he demanded that Breckenridge send four brigades to Polk to assist in the attacks on the Round Forest. Now, about noon of the 2nd, Bragg was informed that the hill had been occupied by men in blue. With cold rain turning to sleet, Bragg called for Breckenridge. He wanted to, to retake that hill. He wanted Confederate guns up there to enfilade Federal artillery that opposed Polk in the Confederate center back on the western side of the river. Bragg ordered Breckenridge to attack at 4 p.m., 45 minutes before sunset, late enough in the day that the Federals could not counterattack. Breckenridge was stunned by the order, and then Bragg staggered him. His attack would be made without any support. The former vice president of the United States protested. With a stick, he drew the opposing lines in the mud. He pointed out that his attack would be made over ground that invited federal cannon fire from west of the river, and it would rake his flanks. Challenged, Bragg angrily answered, Sir, my information is different. When Breckenridge returned to his division, four brigades made up of men from Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, and even a regiment from North Carolina, there was universal disbelief. Amongst the Kentuckians, the 2nd, 4th, 6th, and 9th that comprised the Orphan Brigade, men who left their native state of Kentucky to fight for the Confederacy. There, with them, there was almost open mutiny. Their brigadier, Roger B. Hansen, threatened to kill Bragg. And yet, sullenly, some 5,000 under Breckenridge followed their orders. And sadly, in his anger, Breckenridge himself made a tactical error. He failed to coordinate cavalry support on his right. Corps Commander Leonidas Polk agreed with Breckenridge. He too thought the attack was foolhardy, but his orders were to cover the left flank of the attacking column when it went in at four. There was another who was aware of the impending attack. It was Rosecrans, who correctly analyzed Confederate concentration. Expecting his left to be attacked, he amassed 58 guns to blast the Confederate flank. And so, at 4 p.m., under leaden gray skies with rain and sleet pelting down, the attack began. On a front that stretched one half mile, Breckenridge's division, four brigades, 16 regiments, arrayed in two lines, began to move over 600 yards of open ground while Union cannon fire rained lead and 4,000 men in blue awaited them. As they moved forward, Breckenridge realized his right was not protected and that a Union brigade had overlapped his line. He ordered his second line to shake itself out to cover the threat. Breckenridge expected the worst. And then, inexplicably, 
unexpectedly. Hansen and the Orphan Brigade broke, then routed the Federal right. His men gave chase. Eventually, their pursuit came apart, and when it did, Hansen halted, reformed, then resumed pursuit, all in the first 30 or 40 minutes of the attack. Confederates on Breckenridge's right were also making headway, and the entire Federal line gave way. What was thought impossible was now incredible, unexpected opportunity. Confederate artillery could be brought up, and men could dig in on the ridge for the night, but that's not what happened. Breckenridge's men had been ordered not to go down to the river, but the sight of fleeing Federals was too much. They had suffered for six days without hot food and proper shelter. They had slept and fought in the rain, sleet, and freezing weather, and they wanted nothing more than to get the battle over with and get their hands on abundant supplies they believed were in Federal camps. Despite the shouts and orders of officers, many pursued all the way down to Stones River itself, expecting the rest of Breckenridge's men to follow. The 2nd and 6th Kentucky actually crossed the icy river. That's when it all came apart. Across the river, and now without fear of firing into their own, Union Major John Mendenhall's artillery batteries opened up. Shells slammed into the Confederates at a rate of 100 rounds a minute. It was about then that Brigadier General Roger W. Hansen, the commander of the Orphan Brigade, was hit. Struck in the left knee by a shell, he went down, mortally wounded. Two days later, he would die, the fourth general officer to suffer mortal wounds at Stones River. With the concentrated fire, Confederate pursuit slowed, and disorganized survivors clustered in the freezing water of the river and on both banks. Unable to go forward, they began to fall back. It was at this moment that Federal Colonel John F. Miller seized the initiative. Acting on his own, Miller ordered his brigade of Pennsylvanians, Elioni, and Buckeyes to attack. They were followed by Colonel Timothy R. Stanley's brigade and units from Brigadier General James S. Negley and Brigadier General John M. Palmer. The tide of battle that day had turned. By 445, the route of Breckenridge's division was complete. On Bragg's orders, Brigadier General J. Patton Anderson's brigade crossed the river and covered Breckenridge's retreat. When night fell, the opposing line stood essentially where they began, the two-day battle, a tactical stalemate. Breckenridge, livid with Bragg, was shattered by what he felt was useless slaughter, 1,700 of his 5,000 men casualties. And as if the heavens disapproved of what had taken place, it rained yet again that night. In the early hours, more misery for the rain turned to sleet. At 10 p.m. the night of January the 2nd, Bragg called a meeting of his corps and division commanders. One can only imagine the tension. Due to the continuance of bad weather, and with the river rising, the Confederate commander decided to remain on the field. On the 3rd, a Saturday, around 10 p.m., he made the decision to begin a Confederate retreat to the southeast, to Tullahoma, in a driving cold rain. He left the town and the battlefield to Rosecrans and his Army of the Cumberland. 
For his two days of battle at Murfreesboro, Braxton Bragg suffered 34% casualties. Men he and the Confederacy could not replace. On January the 4th, on the retreat back to Tullahoma, the sun came out for the first time in a week. By then, morale was so low, straggling and desertion so bad, Bragg's Army of Tennessee had dwindled to only some 20,000 effectives. The once proud army was weary, hungry, ragged, and amongst the Army's officer corps, even more tension and ill will. For in the coming days, Bragg made Breckenridge, Hardy, Polk, and Cheatham scapegoats for what took place at Murfreesboro. As to the slight to Breckenridge, his fellow Kentuckians wanted their commander to resign, then challenge Bragg to a duel. He refused, and in due time accepted reassignment in Mississippi. Perhaps the condition of the Army and its relationship to Braxton Bragg can best be surmised in this story that made the rounds about this time. A wild-looking Texan spotting a miserable broken-down mule seized it and improvised a halter and stirrups from stray pieces of rope. Bareheaded and barefooted, the unwashed and unshaven Texan wore a rusty-looking hunting shirt and sat grotesquely perched astride the mule, smoking a corncob pipe. General Bragg and his staff rode up, attracted by the man's unusual appearance. "'Who are you?' inquired Bragg. "'Nobody,' was the answer. "'Where did you come from?' was the next question. "'Nowhere,' replied the Texan. "'Where are you going?' said Bragg. "'I don't know,' the unkempt man answered. "'Then where do you belong?' Bragg insisted. "'Don't belong anywhere,' snapped the Texan. Then came the climax to the conversation. Exasperated, the general asked, Don't you belong to Bragg's army? Bragg's army? Bragg's army? exclaimed the Texan. Why, he's got no army. One half of it he's shot in Kentucky, and the other half has been whipped to death at Murfreesboro. The general turned and rode away. Despite the dissension and low morale, Bragg refused to relinquish command. President Davis asked if Joe Johnston would take over the Army of Tennessee. But one, he was wary of those that might accuse him of upstaging Bragg. And two, his wound from Fair Oaks suffered on the last day of May 1862 had not completely healed. And so he refused. Sadly, the Confederate cause in the West would then continue to suffer from the poison that was Braxton Bragg's personality and command. Across the way, on the night of the last day of fighting at Stones River, 303 wagons of supplies arrived from Nashville. Rosecrans would stay on in the town of Murfreesboro. As one Union soldier optimistically put it, things is working. Things is working. The two-day Battle of Stones River cost him 12,906 casualties out of 41,400 effectives, some 31%. He reported the battle in Washington City a Union victory. It is true that the enemy had retreated from the field, but in truth, 
The Battle of Stones River or Murfreesboro was a Union win in the narrowest sense. In terms of recent setbacks like Fredericksburg and Chickasaw Bayou, it certainly felt like a victory, and Mr. Lincoln and the country needed some good news. The president telegraphed Rosecrans on January the 5th, 1863. God bless you and all with you. The victory at Stones River, of course, spawned repercussions. One, the obvious. Rosecrans' army had driven deeper into the central interior of Tennessee, and Bragg pushed to the southeast corner of the state. Nashville was secure as a federal base, and pro-Unionists in East Tennessee were bolstered. And, yes, there were personal consequences as well. Major General William S. Rosecrans' stock went up, just as Braxton Bragg's sank to new lows. The ripples of those two conditions would have lasting future effect on thousands of men in military planning. Perhaps one of the greatest significances was that the Federal Army had prevented a Confederate victory at a time when the Union cause could hardly suffer another defeat. And Southern morale, especially in the Western theater, desperately needed both the psychological and material boost of a victory. Bragg's Army of Tennessee would not attack again for some time, and in the summer of 1863, it would be flanked and forced back all the way into northwestern Georgia. In an August the 31st, 1863 letter to Rosecrans, the 16th president probably best expressed the personal and national significance of Stones River when he wrote, I can never forget, whilst I remember anything, that about the end of last year and beginning of this, you gave us a hard-earned victory, which, had there been a defeat instead, the nation could scarcely have lived on. And so, though a tactical draw, that silver lining on otherwise two very wet gray and miserable days of battle in late December and early January remains the legacy of the bloody encounter at Stones River. When we next gather, we'll take you to Mobile Bay and Charleston Harbor, where unbelievably daring men took on the unbelievably daring challenge of trying to break the federal blockade. And in an attempt to do so, would change forever the course of naval history. I hope you'll be with us when next we tell the story of the Confederacy's infernal machine, its submersible, the Hunley. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.